All right, we are in the uh, Corinthian letters of Paul. His theme in this uh, letter is unity. Uh, That's not always discussed, but he keeps coming back to their disruption uh, that they have divided over ministers, they have become unholy, Um, they are suing each other, they're refusing in some sense to be a holy community which accepts one another in the Lord. He also talks to them about marriage. They ask him some questions about that. And he talks about the struggle that they are in in persecution and the effect that might have on their relationships. He then warns them about idolatry uh, and the context of eating food, sacrifice to idols. And there he talks to them about having a mind of holy unity and humility. In doing that, he talks about the problem of knowledge puffing up and making people arrogant. And love, which protects the conscience of the other in these um, uh, day-in and day-out matters. And then he finally talks to them about uh, self-limitation by explaining why he and Barnabas did not accept support from the congregation, which was their biblical right. And then he talks more about that as he addresses from the kind of a midrash of the Old Testament, uh, the Exodus, of of this idea of self-limitation, uh, becoming all things to all men, as he, as he puts it. Today, we hit chapter 11, and chapter 11 is an odd chapter in that, uh, in, the, in the book of Leviticus, uh, right in the middle of some pretty mundane commandments, is this uh, incredible statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you look at it in context, it's in the context of very, uh, very odd passages by comparison. Today we have the same thing. In 1 Corinthians 11, we get the subject of women's head covering and the central text for the observance of what we call the Lord's Supper, uh, which is central to all aspects and forms of Christianity. An odd odd combination. But he is still talking about this issue of self-limitation for the purpose of functioning in unity. So uh, I'll try to tie that all together. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says this, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now, interestingly enough, This verse could actually be the concluding verse of chapter 10 very easily. But it also connects into chapter 11. So the people who put the chapters kind of stuck it at the beginning of chapter 11. But it really works well when he says, I want you to to, uh, 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 give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church. Just as I also please men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. You can just see how that fits. But it also fits in the place that it is. So we're going to move on. We're going to look specifically at what he says in in verse 2. So in verse 2, Paul says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything, and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. Now, this is an interesting verse. Interesting 
in our time because of a number of things. But first of all, I want you to catch, all through this letter, Paul says, I don't praise you. I don't praise you because you're doing this. I don't praise you because you're doing this. I don't praise you because you're doing this. And everything they're doing seems to be wrong. So now he says, I do praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Paul gave them the gospel. Paul gave them some basic understandings, which is why they have the questions that they have, that they are struggling to do. They're not doing very well. They're a a mess. Uh, Welcome to the people of God. Israel was a mess in the wilderness. They were a mess in the kingdom. Uh, They're a a mess in diaspora. The church is also a mess. I'm always amazed by replacement people who say, well, Israel messed up so bad and so God formed the church. And I say, have you looked at her? I mean, she's as messy as Israel ever was. Uh, God has a people, Jews and Gentiles, that are in desperate need of him. And Paul had given them the gospel. They had clung to it the best they could in their chaos uh, of living in Corinth and in their own culture. And as a result, he says, I praise you that you remember me in these things and what I taught you. Um, He's critical of them, but he praises them uh, because of them holding to the traditions. Now that word, traditions means the handing down of something. This is, in these, is essentially religious training. As the scripture says, you shall diligently teach these things to your children. And Paul says to Timothy and Titus, I want you to teach certain men uh, who will be faithful, who will be able to teach others. This faith has to be learned. It has to be taught. It has to be a matter of instruction. It's not a matter of saying the magic words. The Holy Spirit is put in you and poof, you work like a GPS navigating through life. It doesn't work that way. The Spirit of God quickens us, makes us willing to obey God. The Word of God tells us how to obey God. And so that's this process that he's talking about. And so in that context, uh, we have too many Christians who believe that the simple gospel or even the Bible is all you need. And what they mean by that is, I have one, right? Uh, But the Bible is filled with admonitions to learn and to pass on the traditions of the fathers and the apostles. Now, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I want to mention it again. There are some books I want to suggest to you, and I'm hoping this week I will uh, make them available and talk about them uh, both on Facebook and and maybe next week. Got to do my sneeze, my one sneeze. That ever, I guess it's not going to happen now, right? Uh, and um, uh, these books are really about how do we maintain ourselves in a culture that is clearly post-Christian. Now, we at the Disciple Center have been doing that for a long time, uh, and you guys know how hard it is, and you also know how how, how difficult it is to get other believers to understand it. Uh, but the darkness is coming, and this 
model that we've established is going to be more needed, not less needed as time goes on. And in the context of that, many may fall away because they simply will assimilate. And if there's any level of persecution, they will run away that way. The parable of the sower is, is our, our guide in that context. So, uh, Paul then, in verse 3, says uh, a number of things that need to be uh, discussed. He says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, this is difficult because we don't speak Hebrew or Greek generally. We're using English, and English makes some distinctions that sometimes Hebrew and Greek words in the scriptures don't make that distinction. So Paul is really here talking about reciprocal roles which involve interdependence and unevenness. So I'm going to say them differently than they're written here to try to help you to catch this a little clearer. He says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every husband. Got that? Notice the word is Christ, not Jesus. It is the role of Messiah and Christ who is in the role of head with regard to the husband. And the husband is the head of the wife Again, role statements, not gender statements. It's not talking about any man and any woman. It's talking about the marital roles. And God is the head of Christ. Clearly, God there is a reference to the Father. In the role towards the Christ. Understand, this is not about any male and any female, he is talking about reciprocal roles that have eternal significance in terms of the relationships that are both reciprocal and uneven. The one who is the head has a protective responsibility over the one who they are the head of. This is not lordship. This is not authority. This is more related to responsibility. Okay? And it's fascinating in a Christian context because the doctrine of the Trinity talks about Christ and the Father being co-equal, but in terms of their roles, they are not. Jesus is submitting himself unto his Father. And therefore, the structure of the unevenness is in the roles not being identical. Though the personages, husband and wife, are co-heirs of Christ, right? So, Paul's going to try to give some insight into this distinction and yet still unity. He's really going to go into that next chapter when he gets into the spiritual gifts. So having said that now, I want to read verses 4 to 10 
and talk about this. There is a struggle with unity implying some level of mutuality, but roles which imply unevenness. So Paul says, every husband who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Now, it's important to understand that in a biblical context, every man is expected to grow up to be a husband. And every girl, is, every woman is expected to grow up and be a wife. The normative framework of Judaism and Christianity is marriage. We live in a culture where singleness is celebrated in some sense over marriage and in the church, we've now got, and the college, the university is shot through with students thinking that they're called to singleness. A biblical nonsense idea that is uh, being way overplayed in terms of a few little verses that are often taken out of context. Uh, but they fit the radical individualism of this culture in a post-modern, post-Christian world. So he says, every man who is praying or prophesying, when is praying and prophesying going to happen? It's going to happen in the context of the community gathered together. They are out of the household and now in the congregation. And this man, this husband, is praying, that is doing the liturgy as we all do, the reading of scripture and the saying of prayers, or preaching, teaching the word of God. And biblically, we'll see this later, this, what I'm doing right now, all of y'all are supposed to be able to do, okay? Uh, it's not supposed to be the way we're doing it, okay? That's not the way they did it in the early church. They uh, all studied the scriptures, they all would speak about what they were learning, and then the elders would, would correct if there was something that needed to be corrected so that the body was built up. We'll, t- we'll talk about that when we get to the next two chapters. So he then says, when the guy does that, his head should be uncovered. Because if he covers his head, he disgraces his head, which is Christ. Okay? But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, disgraces her head which is her husband, right? For she is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. Now, Paul says, notice that the woman can also do the liturgy and the teaching. Well, I thought women weren't supposed to do that. Paul says, I don't allow a woman to usurp authority over the man. That's a different issue. But in terms of our gifting and our ministering in this context, we all have something to say. We are the body of the Lord indwelt by His Spirit, as He'll talk about in the next chapter. And these communal things of gathering to do liturgy and to proclaim what God has said is something any of us as adults can do. So then he says... For a man ought to not have his head covered because he is the image and the glory of God. 
What is the role of the man in the household? He is to be a, in, uh, a, uh, a self-sacrificing lover towards his wife as Christ is towards the church. He is to be a benevolent instructional father as God is in his, to his children. And he is to be a careful, caregiving and benevolent master to his servants in his household. In other words, he expresses in the household the imago Dei, the image of God. His role is to express what God is like to his people and to his children and to his servants. That's the role. And therefore, his head is to be uncovered. The woman, he says, the wife, is the glory of her husband. As the church is the glory of Christ. So these roles have to be clearly understood symbolically as well as behaviorally, both in the home and in the congregation. Not talking about in the world. Not talking about in the workplace. Not talking about in the market. Talking about in the home and in the congregation, which are the centers of the kingdom of God in the present world, awaiting the fullness of the kingdom when Jerusalem will be the capital and holiness will extend everywhere, right? So Paul says, the reason for this is the man did not originate from the woman, but the woman from the man. He's referring back to Genesis. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a companion for him. He fashioned from the side stuff of the man, a woman brought her to him. He said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh is my flesh. She shall be called woman. She was taken from man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall be echad. Okay? So there's a unity in them, but the roles are not, while they're reciprocal, they're not even. They're not the same. Which is why when we take our marital vows at the Disciple Center, the husband and wife don't make the same vow. In the world, they make the same vow. I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do it, back and forth. In, in our context, the man says, I will love you as Christ loved the church. The wife says, I will respond to your love in love. I will entrust myself to you. The, the roles that we're taking on are spiritual roles given to us by God in that context. Paul's now bringing those roles into the congregation and says, when you're, even though you're able to do the same things, you maintain the knowledge of the distinction between male and female in that context. So he says, indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake, the wife for the husband's sake. Therefore, There it came. All right, good. Now I should be okay. Therefore, the wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head 
because of the angels. A very strange verse. Now, who is the authority in the home? It ain't the man. It's the Lord. Right? The Lord tells the man what to do. The Lord tells the wife what to do. The Lord tells the children what to do. And tells the servants what to do. So who's in charge? The Lord is in charge. Who's held responsible? The man. Okay? Not the same as being in charge. When I was the dean of the School of Behavioral Sciences, I was not in charge. I couldn't do anything I wanted. I had to do what Dr. Ellis wanted me to do. I was accountable to him for the School of Behavioral Sciences. I was not able to just do whatever I wanted. I wasn't the lord of the behavioral sciences. I was its head. Okay? That's what it's talking about. And the others can entrust the head to do what's best for them in that context. As Christ did to his father, the wife to her husband, and the people to the leadership in the congregation. That's that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about authority. But he says she should have a symbol of authority. In other words, she's doing this because of the Lord for the angel's sake. Very, very, very strange verse. So what is he talking about? Well, we don't have a lot of scripture on this, but we have some indicators from both Paul and Peter as to what he is talking about here. And there are some other verses too. I just don't have time to chase them down. So I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter uh, 3. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10. Paul is talking about the mystery of the gospel that is allowing him to proclaim that the Gentiles are being brought in with the blessings of Abraham, with Israel, in the total salvation of God. And he says that this is done so that the manifold wisdom of God, remember Paul's been talking about wisdom versus the foolishness of man, and the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man, might be made known through the church, through the people of God, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. The principalities and powers, the King James uses, these are angelic beings. So, here's here's the way it works. Why did God create what he created? Why are we going through all of this? What the heck is going on? Okay? Now, the modern contemporary version is... That God was up there, and he was kind of lonely, and he wanted somebody to love him. And so he created the world, gave us free will, hoping that we would turn and come to him and love him. Okay? That's the, that's the one that's the version that's out there since the 60s. The love generation, right? But the Bible seems to indicate that the angels in effect, came to God and said, we don't get you. 
You don't make any sense to us. And so God said, all right, have a seat. I'm going to create a world. And in that world, I'm going to orchestrate it in such a way that you will see my grace and my mercy and my wisdom and my wrath and my, my, my justice and my grace. Everything will be seen in the context of that. And therefore, I'm going to use the church, ultimately, Israel and the church, to be a uh, manifestation of who I am for the principalities and powers to go, oh, a self-portrait of the invisible God seen in his creation. That's what's going on. Now, Paul's not the only one who talks about this. Peter talks about this. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So the prophets even read their own stuff to try to figure out what is going on. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Now if you read Genesis, you know that at Bethel, there is a stairway to heaven. And the angels come down and go up, back and forth. And the book of Job says that the angels go around the earth, looking what's going on. Right? And then they come and talk to God. And so they're coming down here and they're looking around and they're checking things out. Trying to understand. They've got close-up seats. This is like those uh, plays you go to. The dinner plays where the play is going on while you're eating dinner. And you get up and follow the characters around into this area and into that area. So the angels are doing that. And so the writer to the book of Hebrews says to us, Be careful of strangers. Not that they'll do you harm, but you might be entertaining angels without knowing it. Okay? So, the Bible says that men are not to wear that which pertains to a woman. A woman is not to wear that which pertains to a man. Stay in your uniform as male and female because of the angels. So when you're doing the exact same thing, so you couldn't tell whether it was a man or a woman, you should maintain that. And the way you maintain that, Paul says, is by your hair. And this has been the basis of covering issues 
uh, in both Judaism and the, and, and the uh, church ever since. So back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll pick it up at verse 11. Now, having said, our roles are different. Be appropriate to your role. When you're doing something together, make it clear that this is a male and this is a female. Not because you need it. You know what you are, except in California. But you you know what you are, but the angels don't have gender. They're not given in marriage. In the resurrection, you'll be like them. So they, you know, stay in the uniform. It's very hard to watch something if the actors don't stay in their, in their character and they don't stay in their outfit. It's hard to watch a sports thing if you don't know what team that person belongs to, right? Uh, this is being demonstrable for the angels. Now, he says this. However... In the Lord, neither is the woman independent of the man, nor is the man independent of the woman. Let me read that the way I think it should say. In the Lord, neither the wife is independent of the husband, nor the husband independent of the wife. Now this sounds very much like what Paul said with regard to marriage and sexuality, right? The husband doesn't have power over his own wife, but the wife... The wife doesn't have power over her own body, but the husband, right? There's a mutuality here. Don't take the roles as one is superior to the other. The idea of the roles is to show the unity. You don't have unity if all you have is uniformity. So he says, in the Lord, the wife is not independent of the husband, nor is the husband independent of the wife, for as the woman originated from the man, he's back to Genesis, so also the man has his birth through the woman ever since Genesis. Okay, Show me the man who wasn't born of a woman. Notice the mutual interdependence which implies a sense of equality, but not sameness. Distinction and equality is the biblical model. That's not the world's model. The world says it can only be equal if everybody is the same. And it hates distinctions. So the big claim for diversity is actually going to undo Diversity, because it makes us all have to do it exactly the same, which is no longer diversity. So, he now picks up from there. Verse 13. Then you judge. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given for her covering. Now, 
He's appealing now to nature. What, who, who made nature? God made nature. So this is a created thing. That males and females are different. Let me tell you one thing that is generally true universally. There are some exceptions that usually have to do with genetics and disease. But generally, males' hair uh, doesn't stick around. Okay? You get these little bald spots. Okay? Now, in the Middle Ages, the clergy used to actually create the tonsure for themselves. And that's where the little skull caps came from uh, to keep the head warm. And, the, and that was in the church before it was among the Jews. The Jews always covered their heads, but they didn't cover their heads with the little kippahs. That came out of the church, and then it went over there, right? And so if you watch the Pope, he's wearing one, and the rabbi's wearing one. That's, that's where this comes from. Men's hair tends to be thin. It, it's just nature says, if somebody's going to lose their hair, it's going to be a man. And that's how you know it's a man. The other parts that are male don't show, right? Hopefully, right? And so, what about women? Women's hair generally is thicker on the head, not here. That's for us. The men, we get hair everywhere. We don't want it. And and in the ears and all that stuff. But women's got their hair is part of the created order for them to have long hair. And it just simply, and almost every culture, getting that makes a distinction between the shorter or no hair of men and the long hair of women. It's simply, that's his argument. So, beyond that, he says, but if you're going to be contentious about it, we don't really have another practice. Neither do the churches of God. This is the way it is, folks. Okay. Now, Paul's not dealing with California, where everything's a fashion thing, and we, you know, we, our hair is every color and, and every shape. And uh, we've had people at Cal Baptist who have their, you know, big spiked hair going everywhere and those kind of things really drawn attention to themselves. But the general rule, Paul says, is that people know that. So he's not saying that women have to put a covering on. He says they have one. If the men and women's hairstyles are different, that is adequate. If the men and women's clothing styles are different, that's adequate to maintain that I'm in the role of a female, I'm in the role of a male, even though a lot of what we're doing is the same uh, in terms of the congregation. That's what he's talking about. Again, he's, he's leading up to where he's going to talk about how do we maintain unity with distinctiveness. Uh, distinctiveness of roles in this case. He's going to talk about distinctiveness of spiritual gifts in the next chapter. So now he moves on, and i got to really move on. But this is very familiar territory, so I should be able to just do this uh, uh, easy with you. So, Paul then picks up at verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Paul says, 
coming together as a congregation is not doing you any good. You're actually a dysfunctional gathering. We all know that family is for our good, but we know that some families, when they gather, it's a mess. Same with churches. Okay? Same with congregations. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a congregation, I hear that there are divisions existing among you, and in part I believe them. Now, he's already talked about that. He's just repeating everything he said up in the letter to now. You're divided over your sin. You're divided over uh, what ministry you like. You're divided over everything. You look for what you want and what you don't like. You have no humility before God, no sense of holiness, and no sense of belonging to each other. So when you come together, you're actually not improving yourselves in terms of the kingdom. You're really tearing the kingdom apart. Now, verse 19, he says, There must be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. The factions, the people who are dividing over these things, are proving that they are not following God. And the ones who refuse to be divided over these things are proving that they are approved of God, Paul said. Okay. You can live a holy life in the midst of unholy people. You can live a righteous life in the midst of unrighteous people. So do it, is basically what he's saying. So now he's going to talk about the central picture of our unity. Therefore, when you meet together, you are not eating the Lord's Supper. Now remember in the early church, whenever they gathered, and they probably gathered on Saturday night at the end of the Sabbath, right after the Havdalah, and they retained themselves in the synagogues and in the churches that were emerging, and they would have a common meal called a agape, a love meal, and they would take part of that and give thanks, Eucharist, right? The idea of giving thanks, and that was using bread and wine, the way it's done on the Sabbath, and with a picture in mind of the Last Supper. That's what he's talking about. He says, when you come together, uh, you are not eating the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry, and another is drunk. So what he's saying is, you come together for your potluck, or your tough luck, or your agape, or whatever you want to call it. And what you're doing is, you're going, man, I'm hungry, let's eat. This person over here doesn't have any food. You know, they should have brought some. Uh, And boy, I got the best Manischewitz of all, right? That is this good wine. I got to have some more of that, right? So one guy's over in the corner going, we eat three kings, you know, whatever he's doing. And another person's singing the hallelujah chorus with his stomach because he's hungry, right? Now, does that show the body of Christ? No. That shows our distinctions. I got money and you don't. I'm satisfied and you're not. That's not the body. The body, when one suffers, we all suffer. When one is praised, we all are praised. We distribute among ourselves so that there is no need. That's the body of Christ. 
But they're doing a symbol of it. Now let's have the wine and let's have the bread and let's all sing we are one in the bond of love. And then we're all out of here. But they're living in denial of what that symbolism is. So he says, Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church? He's not talking about the building. He's talking about the people. And shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Now we all learned this when we were kids. This is the church. And this is the steeple. Open the doors. And see all the people. Right? That's incorrect. This is a building. And it has a steeple. If you want to see the church. You got to look at the people. Okay. That's my version of it. Okay. But that's the way it is. The The church is us. So if we're gathered at a park somewhere, it's the church. If we're gathered in this building, it's the church. We're gathered in our homes, it's the church. And what Paul's saying is you're not practicing the presence of the body of Christ, whose body we are. So he says, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. Remember the traditions? This was one of them. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The one who washed their feet. The one who cared for them. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, and it's done in two ways. It's done in Shabbat, with the cup first and then the bread, which is the chapter 10, which is the communion of the body and blood of Christ. It's to remind us that we belong to each other. I think that's what they were doing each week. And it also reminds us of the Last Supper, which they would do once a year at Passover, when they thought of the body that hung on the cross. But the body that he's focused on here is the body which we are. And you show the Lord's death till he comes. So therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now what does he mean? If you don't understand its meaning, And you deny what it means by your behavior, you are taking it unworthily. He's not saying unworthy, none of us are worthy. He's saying your manner is inappropriate. Okay? Imagine at a wedding ceremony, the pastor says to the, group, the bridegroom, You may now kiss your bride. And he turns around and starts kissing all of his ex-girlfriends. And then comes and kisses the bride. How would that go over? Not very well. I dare say that wedding would never get beyond the ceremony, right? This ceremony of gathering is that we are the body of Christ. And therefore, if we act 
inappropriately towards each other and then partake of the items, we are taking it in an unworthy manner. So he says, let a man examine himself, not each other. And in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks condemnation to himself if he does not judge the body correctly. Not the body of Jesus, the body of Christ. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. So much for being symbolic. Remember Moses striking the rock the second time? Okay, you're not going in the land. There is a judgment, that, a temporal judgment that we bring on ourselves in this context. He says, if we judge ourselves, we will not be condemned. But when we are judged, so if God judges us for this, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. If God is giving you punishment, he's giving you punishment to correct you so that he will not have to ultimately condemn you to hell. Even that is the mercy and grace of God as a parent corrects their child for their good. So then he says, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Be focused on one another. It is a gathering of eat. Being together, when you sit there and eat, when we have the agape at Pentecost, you should look around and say, these are the body. These are the people that I'm connected with. And these are the people who I am to care for and be cared for by. That's what the meaning of that symbol is. It's not, okay, I got, I'm saved. See you later. Okay. Oh, are you saved? Did you eat it? Great. Right? We're not on our own. He's saving us. So he says, If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. And then Paul says, I'll take care of the rest of this when I get there. I'd like to know what he did. You, know. you see the theme of unity and distinction that is being used? Paul's speaking to us to be a holy community, not just in our household, but in our congregation and in the body at large. And we are given symbols and roles and rituals to keep us mindful of that so that we will act appropriate and be, in fact, the hands and the feet and the mouth. And the body of Christ, which he's about to talk about in chapter 12 as what we're supposed to be doing. So, let's... uh